This series is presented by Humankind Public Radio in association with the BTS Center, funding provided by the Henry Luce Foundation. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. You're listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg, this time serving the whole patient. The fact that someone is asking the question, because lots of times they don't get asked these questions like, what is your greatest fear? Are you afraid to die? Or really seminal questions. I think just when they know that someone's like, oh, you're willing to talk about this. No one else is asking those questions. They're asking me how my pain is. They're asking me if I need to go to the bathroom. They're asking how my surgical wound looks. But wow, you're the first person. Thank you for asking me that question. 12K, cardiovascular ICU, how can I help you? Sue Best is a palliative care social worker at the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. Over four decades, her calling has been to support people facing cancer and other serious conditions. She's led breast cancer support groups for many years. She's also an ordained deacon in the Lutheran Church. For Sue, a patient's spiritual values and beliefs can influence their choices and fortify their capacity for resilience. We deal with spiritual issues every day. We may not call them that, but for me as a social worker who's charged with looking at what is the emotional response or needs that a person has, what is their social context in their network, how natural it is to then understand more what is their foundational beliefs and values. And for me, that's spirituality, whatever your beliefs may be, whether that includes religious beliefs or just beliefs about how you view the world. Not all social workers are comfortable discussing spirituality and clearly preaching a particular belief system to medical patients in their care would be regarded as inappropriate. But in some cases, those patients are looking for a way to explore their beliefs and the important life questions that can arise in times of challenge. The reality is is that people choose who they want to have those conversations with, and it may not be the designated spiritual care person or the psychosocial care person, which is a social worker or a chaplain. It may be the person that brings them their food every day or the housekeeper that they have a relationship with. Um, so people are going to choose um, who that person is. One of the lovely chaplains I work with at OHSU often says to me, Sue, you're the person who has the relationship with them, and I know you want me to come and help them with these spiritual conundrums, but they trust you and they know you, so you're not, you're not stepping on my toes if you're talking about things that might be perceived as being spiritual. An integrative view recognizes that the person being cared for is multidimensional, encompassing mind, body, and spirit all at the same time. An oncologist is the expert in one aspect, a chaplain focuses on another, and a social worker has yet another specialty. But a well-rounded approach takes into account the totality. Sue Best's own personal and professional journey was inspired in part by the large family where she was raised in the Chicago area. My mother um, was someone who instilled in us the call to serve. And despite having eight children and spending 10 years going back to school to get her, finish her undergraduate degree, she always found time to volunteer. 
and some of the volunteer experience, she would take some of us with her. And one that was particularly poignant was she helped people, she was a mentor for people with mental health issues. And I can still to this day remember this woman, she would visit in her apartment and help provide support to her. Um, part of it being raised in a Catholic family with just our call as a faithful human being is to serve. And then in high school, I was part of a group of, uh, I went to a girls Catholic high school. We went to the south side of Chicago on Saturdays to help hang out with kids who uh, lived in a Cabrini Green uh, housing project. So kids who were greatly impoverished. And this one Saturday morning, it was super cold. And um, it was we were having a Christmas party for these kids. And I connected with a boy who, on that day, had no socks on, had a stadium jacket with the zipper broken, had a white undershirt, and had a welt on his head. And I didn't, in my naivete at 16, understand all the implications of that. But from that, I decided I needed to solve the problems of poverty in Chicago. Um, and obviously, I haven't quite accomplished that. But that face still fuels my drive to serve. The profession of social workers is rooted in the philanthropic movements of the 1800s. Charities known as benevolent associations sprang up to serve the urban poor. These were complemented by publicly supported poor houses called almshouses, as well as settlement houses pioneered by the legendary Jane Addams, who sought to express what she saw as the spirit of Christ. An agenda of social reform naturally harmonized with a commitment to faith. Sue Best of Oregon Health and Science University today. For me, spirituality is the core of each person, their foundational beliefs and values. And when, for me, I've spent my whole career in healthcare, so and a lot of that time with people with cancer or life-threatening illnesses, and for several years with children who had special needs and were profoundly impaired. And so I think um, spirituality really speaks to what brings meaning in life and how do you perceive your life and, uh, and kind of who you are called to be and what you're called to do in this world. And whether you are a devout Muslim, Jew, Christian, um, or a person of goodwill, we all inherently have, um, we are all spiritual beings because we all make sense of life in some way but we may express it very differently. So I think that whenever someone faces a crisis or for the people I see as serious or traumatic illness, it comes to the core of who they are. And sort of brings up questions of meaning. Absolutely. And what does life mean? Uh, and I think people get very reflective, especially if they're at the end of their life. It's like, what has my life been? What are my regrets? Um, why is this happening? So I think some of the big core spiritual questions, the big questions of life, I think are really truly of a spiritual nature. For someone dealing with serious illness, a typical question is, why me? In medical science, the relationship between cause and effect can sometimes appear straightforward. But in human health, there's also a factor that's hard to quantify, an element of mystery that beckons us to contemplation. Even someone who's smoked for six years 
and has lung cancer, not everyone who has smoked for six years has lung cancer. So it's still in a moment where you could think technically and scientifically there is a relationship between smoking and lung cancer, but still that person's gonna say, well, why did it happen to me? So I think it's really allowing the person the opportunity to explore that and what does that mean to them? I will never pretend to have the answers to those questions. So how do you help a person explore that most personal question? Well, I think the fact that you are open and willing to have the conversation is a great start. Um, and, and because people really yearn to have their providers deal with some of those core issues. And when you just open the door and you express a willingness to have that conversation, they develop like maybe a deeper sense of comfort and trust and going, oh, David, you just even are willing to talk about this. Because a lot of providers are super uncomfortable in speaking about these things. Why do you think that is? I think um, because it's awkward, it feels sacred, it feels intrusive. It may be that they're just not comfortable with what kind of language to use to ask those questions. Um, and that's not something when I was trained that we talked much about. The good news is for professionals in my field, social work, um, there are some combined masters in social work and masters in divinity uh, programs. There are more classes and coursework on spirituality uh, and looking at the whole person model. And so I think partly it may be people who are charged to ask those questions or unsettled themselves about answering those questions in their own lives. Recently, a woman who is in the intensive care unit and um, was about to have some surgery and was really anxious. And I said, Lisa, what are, what are things that give you comfort? And she, despite the fact she couldn't speak to me, she was the best writer on this tablet who she could very, she was wide awake and on a breathing machine, which is pretty uncommon. And she's like, well, Kali, what really helps me is prayer or scripture. I said, well, do you have a favorite scripture, piece of scripture? She's like, well, not necessarily. I said, do you mind if I share one that really helps me when I'm feeling anxious? I said, it's just simply the statement, may the peace that surpasses all understanding fill your heart and your mind. And so I offered to print that out for her from Google and just said, here's one that I find helpful. Um, but I also found, and we're not very good at stopping, is that I just sat there with her and held her hand for 15 minutes, which I myself was trying to look at what are ways that I can slow down as a provider and as a human being, and just being able to sit with her and just the comfort of holding her hand as she just tried to rest and as she kind of meditated on that particular phrase. system of modern Western medicine has made great strides in the ability of surgical, pharmaceutical, and other interventions to repair the human body. But in this high-tech approach, the human toll of illness sometimes gets obscured. For patients, though, the emotional and existential questions can loom large. Again, Sue Best. 
sometimes they matter a lot and sometimes maybe they can't give voice to them and they just appreciate that one that they're able to pause for a moment and go oh yeah wow these are really big issues um you know if it's going to allow them to die peacefully um it's it is a big issue and can be very meaningful um i think ultimately I mean, there's always something we can do as providers, which is a way that I've been able to do this work for 40 years of feeling like there's helping redefine hope to not just, I hope you get cured to, I hope you have a comfortable night. I hope that you have a good visit with your grandchildren. I had an incredible mentor um, who was a physician who taught me how to redefine hope. And so I think any small thing we can do to allow someone the ultimate peace that they can experience, whatever that means for them, is something we should always strive to do. Redefine hope. So hope, um, I think, is whatever someone believes it is. I was just having an interesting dialogue with a colleague where we talk about false hope. People hope for miracles. Well, far be it from me to diminish someone else's definition of hope. And you may have someone says, well, I think God's going to cure me. And, and I can say, I hope that's the case, um, but what if it doesn't happen? Um, and so I think it's... Sorry, sorry, do you ask that, what if it doesn't happen? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean they have to answer that. And so, because it's not my role to say, oh, you're hoping for the wrong thing. As you're describing this, I can't help but wonder what your own journey as a cancer survivor may have taught you about how to interact with and provide counseling and support to the patients that you help as a social worker? I think the probably the thing that taught me the most was humility. It's very humbling to not feel well. Um, I'm an incredibly active, fit person, and there were days that I could barely get off the couch because I felt so weak and so I had imagined oh my gosh what if I was someone who had a bad heart or had diabetes or you know had other issues how would I be able to do this and so I think um, it taught me a lot I mean the gift of working in this field um, and having worked for years prior to that and cancer I, I had had a peek into what that life lessons might be and so it wasn't I didn't go into it um, not knowing, but it's way different when it's you yourself. And I, um, even as much as I knew about breast cancer, having led the support group for 15 years and probably worked with a thousand women in my career who'd had breast cancer, um, it's uniquely your own experience. And I was just as terrified as anyone else was. Um, now, when you meet with a patient who's been diagnosed with cancer, do you tend to reveal your own history to them? Not very often, um, very rarely. And partly it's because it changes the dynamic of the relationship. Their job is not to take care of me and worry about me. It doesn't mean that they can't, as a human being, care about who I am. Um, and there's just a very few times that I've shared that. And I know that, that I was at a national conference a couple years ago, and we had a chance for anyone who was a cancer survivor to gather just to meet each other, and there were very different philosophies in that room. One guy was like, oh, I shared all the time with my breast cancer support group because I want them to know that people get through this. Um, my mother also died of pancreatic cancer, so again, there's just been a very 
few times that I've shared that experience just to say, yep, you can get through this and yep, this is hard. But I, um, I don't want them to feel like that their job is to take care of me. that social workers serve the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. You're listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more and to access additional episodes of this podcast, along with other resources, please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org. Melissa Stewart, senior clinical social worker at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City, one of the world's leading cancer treatment centers. I've always known that I wanted to be in a helping profession um, from the time I was young, and so was contemplating um, becoming a psychologist, a social worker. Those were sort of the mental health professionals, what I was thinking. And so I ended up going to uh, college studying psychology and um, that led me to a master's degree in social work. And why did you want to pursue that? My parents were a very strong influence to me in that regard. My father was a psychologist uh, and a teacher, a professor. Um, and both of my parents, they were hippies, you know, that was sort of the, not wild hippies, um, but working hippies, but, you know, they really embraced that attitude around peace and love and harmony and working together and fighting for justice and um, those kinds of values, um, which I still hold very dear, uh, even more now than ever before. And so uh, being a person who contributed to the world in some way, large or small, was always important. Eight years ago, Melissa was ordained as an interfaith minister at the One Spirit Learning Alliance in New York. Her social work, spanning more than 25 years, provides a direct channel for serving society. And in a cancer center, that often means helping patients and their loved ones to manage anxiety, sometimes intense anxiety, that can be triggered in the case of a life-threatening diagnosis. People are looking to soothe the emotions they're being bombarded with. And some welcome the framework of spiritual wisdom as found in all our great traditions. It helps us feel a bit more secure in the circumstances. Perhaps there's some sense to this. Perhaps there's something I can learn or gain or grow from. Um, perhaps there's someone or something looking out for me in some way. Um, feeling safe in the body of existence somehow. Mm-hmm. Is that a higher power? Could be. Um, so that's part of, you know, my personal mission uh, these days is to help us understand how we are all spiritual beings, meaning all human beings. We all have the impulse to understand why we're here uh, and to find a sense of purpose and belonging and connection. And um, it, 
I want to broaden our understanding of spirituality so that even those people who don't think of themselves as spiritual can start to claim that part of themselves, ourselves. So for some of us, going back to what you asked about a higher power, that word fits perfectly, and for others it won't, but there's still that impulse to try to understand or connect to or find our place in this very vast multiverse. Last year I was working with a young man um, who was a policeman and a first responder at 9-11 and developed a lymphoma years later. And um, I got to know him when he, was, he had already had a, a stem cell transplant and his disease had recurred. So he had a very aggressive lymphoma and he wasn't going to survive but he was very determined to do whatever he could. He was really very depressed and just couldn't wrap his head around it that this was happening to him. And he was about, let me just, 43 or 44 years old. He talked about having gone to Catholic school as a kid and feeling really disheartened by the way he was taught God is because his experience of God and Jesus was so different. Um, so there was a disconnect there for him, even as a little, a little boy. And so he really abandoned that. And a disconnect like that is not uncommon. Not uncommon, no. And just through our conversations about what our responsibilities are as human beings in our lives and how we grow and develop and mature, and about the idea of reengaging God in a conversation because the God of his childhood, his personal understanding was that, and Jesus was the, the framing for him, the label, he hung on it, um, was a kind and loving, a compassionate and generous figure. So was it possible to kind of re-approach that? And through our conversations and just his own process and sort of the wearing down of his body and uh, his fatigue, all of those things in combination, he really softened, I think. Um, and he had been an angry, aggressive guy. I mean, he described himself as really having changed over the course of his illness. That his illness had changed him? I think the illness was a very big part of that. And there was a way that he could even see it. And this is what we hope for, I think. I say we in, in a large way. But if you are dealing with a, a very serious illness, if you can see it as a gift, if it's, if it's possible for you to a, a see what benefits there may be in a grueling experience, there's some salvation in that. Um, and it, that doesn't occur for everyone. Uh, and I don't want to belittle the the experience and how tough it is and, and how uh, miserable it can be and that it's, some, some people don't find that. So I even, you know, if we can dip in every once in a while to a sense of peace or serenity or that it's a gift or there's something I'm learning, I'll take it. You know, so I don't, many of these um, experiences that I'm describing to you are not things that I think we just, oh, I got it and we stick there. You know, it's like, I got it, oh, I lost it. <laughs> 
and then we kind of have to work and, and dedicate ourselves to finding it again if we're so inclined. So there's a lot of back and forth motion. And I certainly experienced that in my own life. Social workers and other spiritual care providers, along with health professionals overall, need ways to sustain themselves in the face of working conditions that can be draining on the best of days. Staying spiritually conscious and attuned allows providers to be more present, more open, more faith-filled, and thus more fully available to the needs of their patients. Again, Melissa Stewart of Sloan Kettering in New York. So our own spiritual awareness is nurturing to us and sustaining to us as professionals in a very hard, very challenging field where we encounter a lot of sadness and a lot of grief. Um, And it allows us, the spiritual attunement, allows us to have conversations with people that I really frame as sacred. And that is even more supportive of our work you know so I'm more gratified by the work when I can really connect with someone heart to heart so my ability to bring my full presence and my own vulnerability um, to some of the most heartbreaking moments also is an opening for connection and authenticity for both both parties that is, you know, that's the very stuff of life. That's, that's the juice right there. So let me ask you, when you go Please. through a particularly tough day at the hospital, yeah. and perhaps there's dying around you, perhaps there's families who are freaking out, because they're so distraught over Mm -hmm. a loved one who's going. And you try to be fully present to that and to be compassionate to it. How do you release that so that it doesn't store in you in a way that damages you as the practitioner? So first of all, there's something about fully showing up for those moments that helps with the release of them. In that, you know, when we're trying to protect ourselves a little too much, almost, (laughs) and it's a very delicate balance, so it's hard to to figure that out. I remember the very first time many years ago that I um, was embraced by a young woman whose husband was dying. He had a terrible brain tumor. I think she was in her late 20s, if I remember, and I was around the same age at that point, and she just clung to me and sobbed and I I mean I just flashes it was such a formative event in my evolution as a professional and I just I had to really like okay breathe and feel to myself (laughs) I need to feel my feet on the floor I'm grounded I'm connected to the earth I'm you know the energy this is energy running I don't have to hold on to any of it I mean I really had to do a lot of grounding and conscious sort of uh, flow of energy so as not to get overwhelmed uh, by it. And then I think when the event is over, allowing myself some quiet 
or fortunately having my own office, not everybody does, but a space where I could, if I needed to, cry. Um, does that happen sometimes? Sometimes. Not that often, but sometimes. Sometimes it's just so sad. It's really hard to hold that. Yeah, and there's no need to. I mean, when I'm in the, when I'm with people, one of the rules of thumb is it's okay, in, in my, like what I've heard, and, and certainly my rule, is it's okay and, in fact, really beautiful to show emotion. So if people are expressing something that's very, very sad, to have your eyes well up or to appear moved is appropriate and reassuring to people about your own humanness and your own connection. You don't want to cry so hard that they are then concerned about what's going on for you. And if you're crying that hard, something of yours just showed up. You know, so it's not, you know, so those are the kinds of things we have to be careful about. Melissa Stewart of Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York and earlier Sue Best of the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Doug Sugarts. Editorial assistance from Andrew Andresco, Kathy Graham, David Cruz, and Ken Rogers. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Dime Roberts, Noel Flatt, and Tony Buck. The Spiritual Care Podcast is presented by Humankind Public Radio. To learn more and to access our other podcasts and related resources, please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org. That's spiritualcarepodcast.org. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher.